Welcome to the Beyond Ordinary Woman podcast. Every two weeks, we'll post a podcast version of one of our free training videos, but you can access them now at beyondordinarywomen.org. This episode or series includes downloadable information on our website, beyondordinarywomen.org. Go to resources on the main menu and click on podcast slash video extras. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Kay Daigle of Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, and I'm here today with Nicah Spaulding, who is the resident theologian at St. Jude Oak Cliff in the Dallas, Texas area. Welcome once again, Nicah. Nicah is always so great about joining us and lending her expertise. And so I did think of her when I thought about this topic, about reimagining discipleship. And the reason that I was concerned about this topic is just what I'm seeing going on in the, in the country at this point, what I'm seeing from Christians, I'm seeing a lot of contemptuous attitudes toward other Christians, a lot of nastiness, and a real lack of humility, not seeing a lot of Christ-likeness. And this is all on display on social media every single day. Not that I'm looking for it, it is just there. And so I've been very disturbed because to me, the origin of that has to go back to the discipleship that we are doing with believers. And so I thought Nika as a theologian, that uh, she could perhaps guide us to maybe some things we need to change about our discipleship. So Nika, welcome. Thank you, Kay. I'm excited to be here with you and equally concerned about this very thing. And so um, when you asked me, I, we went to lunch and Kay and I got to talking about it and I was like, oh my gosh, Kay. And I just like flooded her with information and she was like, so do you want to do a podcast on it? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just hit record next time we have this conversation. So um, I think we're both seeing some really similar trends and concerned about those trends. And so I'm really excited to come and chat with you about this big word, discipleship, and hopefully maybe better define it um, and, and better talk about it so people can begin to think about it maybe in different categories. Well, let's just start there. Let's just yeah. start with defining discipleship. Yeah, I love it. You know, it's interesting. I didn't grow up in the church. And so, uh, you know, I went to seminary and that's really where I learned so much theology and Bible. And so I remember it, I had this weird experience all the time where I'd get out of seminary and I'd go talk to my friends who'd grown up in the church. And I'd be like, well, you guys know about the Trinity, right? Three persons, one essence. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> and so I quickly learned when I would go talk to people about discipleship, I quickly learned, look, I was saying the word and meaning one thing and they were hearing something completely different. And one of the reasons I say that is I was in a, I was on a road trip with some friends two years ago. Both of these gals grew up in the church and I asked them, you know, they were talking about discipleship. And I was like, Hey, the way you guys keep using that word, you describe it like it's a program. And they go, well, yeah, that's what discipleship is. It's a program. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they're like, well, it's learning how to study your Bible, prayer, and a couple of spiritual disciplines. And, and I said, you know, would it surprise you to know that I define discipleship completely differently, that I define it as identity formation? And I remember the two of them just stopped talking. And one of them goes, huh, I have never, ever heard that or thought about it that way. And so that's why I'd say, first and foremost, most people define discipleship 
by a program. And we do this. Like if you go to, you know, a lot of church websites and you just type in the word discipleship, chances are there will be a program that you can, you can attend. And that's the definition of discipleship for them. And there's nothing wrong with programs. I've run programs. K's run programs. Most of you listening to this are part of programs, but the program is a tool. It's not the whole of discipleship. What I would say the whole of discipleship and what we've missed the last few years is ultimately identity formation. And what I mean by that, it's, it's asking big questions. Who is God? Who am I? Who are others? And how do those things relate? And I think because we haven't been asking and answering those questions, it's created a toxicity. We think kind of, if I check the box of reading the, my Bible, I check the box of prayer, then I can live however I want. And I'm being a disciple. And I just think that's a huge misunderstanding. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I have those sort of program discipleships in my background, although I remember I was put into this discipleship group and I've been a Christian for a long time. I was put in this group to study those very things that I already knew how to do. Yeah. And I kept wondering, why do I have to be in this program? But they said, you have to be in this program. If you want to disciple anybody else, you have to go through it first. And so it was sort of like, Maybe we should talk about where I am and try to think, you know, where is she kind of missing what God wants for her? It yeah. just didn't really fit what I needed at the time. But that was definitely, this was discipleship. You do this, then you're, you're able to disciple somebody else. Yeah. And I think that it's so interesting because you're saying that it's, when you look at discipleship in the scriptures, it's so personal. I mean, you think about the way Jesus talked to people and the way he spent time with them. And, the, and what we as ministry leaders hate about that, it's slow. <laughs> it's unpredictable. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's painful. It's, it's not scalable to the thousands. So if you're in a large church, it's really hard to do this. And that's why I think, you know, the frenetic pace of life means we're doing discipleship faster, better, you know, bigger. And what gets lost in that is people are not in the same place. So everybody starts in a different place. Everyone has different needs. People are going through different seasons. Um, and so, you know, earlier I said, I think discipleship is identity formation. I said, it's these three big questions. And I hope, uh, your listeners are like telling them, like, prove it. <laughs> like, where do you come up with these questions? Cause I think like Katie, your point, like going through that program, maybe the way a program should start is just with this question, like, who do you say God is, right? This first big question of identity formation, the program, if it's not designed to help you know and worship and love God better, it's not producing disciples. Like that's the first thing I would say. So every, everybody who's saying, I want to make disciples, I would ask you, well, what is, what's the end goal? If it's to make better Bible readers, that's not the goal. If it's to say, hey, I want my people to encounter God more truly, more beautifully, more worshipfully, then, then I would say, okay, now build a program that can do that. And, you know, it's interesting because that's, it, it feels so intuitive to me because again, I didn't grow up in the church. So for me, I just only had kind of the scriptures to say, okay, well, if I were going to start with an individual, you know, some Sally comes to me and says, hey, I want you to disciple me. I would probably just start in Genesis one. And I think what's so interesting about that is that's how Genesis one begins. So you think about who Genesis is written to. It's written to a people who are coming out of exile, right? Moses is gone and he's rescued the people out of Egypt. And they're the ones getting this first five books. And it's answering this question, who is Yahweh? I mean, it's answering this like immediate first question that they want. They've been in Egypt. They've been around foreign gods. 
they're in the wilderness and you know, they're asking Moses. So who's this guy that sent you to come get us? Like, who, who are we talking? Who's the God of Abraham, our forefather? Who is he? And God's like, why don't I introduce myself to you? I'm the God who creates the heavens and the earth. I'm the God who fashioned you in my image. I'm, you know, and sort of like this idea of if your discipleship program doesn't start by trying to help you answer who is God, I don't think it's starting in the right place. And so that's one of the things I think is hugely missing in our programs. And of course, it's funny, you see Jesus comes, right? And the most important question he asks the disciples is, who do you say that I am? And I, I just think that would be a great question to ask people. Okay, guys, who do you say God is? And depending on that answer, you're going to learn a lot about where that person's at. You know, depending on that answer, you're going to go, oh, maybe we should be starting in first John talking about love as opposed to Leviticus talking about rules, depending on, you know, where a person is starting in that journey. Yeah. And, and of course, this is much harder, as you said earlier, this is much harder to do because it is so personal. You can't just have a one size fits all discipleship program. Yeah. It's harder and it's, uh, it's more dependent on the spirit. You know, I think that's the, programs are easy to, to build, you know, and what's harder is to pray and to ask God to guide and to lead and to give us wisdom. And yet, I mean, when you think about sort of these, like, if you think about the Trinity, all three members, right? The way God starts scripture in Genesis one is he's introducing himself. The way Jesus comes, he says, I am the visible image of the invisible God. And he asks them, who do you say that I am? And then he tells them in the upper room, the Holy Spirit's going to come and one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to testify to you about who God is. And so when you think about your discipleship program, if you're not spirit led and spirit dependent, you're really cutting yourself off from one of your biggest sources of teaching you who God is. And, you know, hopefully every program says, look, we want to pray and we want to be spirit led and we want to, but you and I both know sometimes the demands of the job, the demands of the size, sometimes, you know, you're kind of like, did we pray? I mean, did we, did we ask God to, and with maturity, you get better with that, with growth, you, you learn those things. But, and, and again, I empathize. I'm a, I'm a still a pastor. That's what I do with my job. And it is, um, you know, you kind of, you, one of the hardest things is to show up to counsel somebody and to not know what they're going to need from you. And it's a hard thing to say, okay, Lord, I know you're sufficient in this moment to give me the wisdom I need, or to give me the humility to say, I don't know. Um, but I think that that piece, though, to say, hey, my discipleship is going to have to be slow and patient and spirit led is a really vital piece to all of this. Well, you've really given people a place to start, though, with the where is who is God question. And then depending on the answer, you work through who God really is. But, you know, a lot of these Christians that I find online know who God is. Yeah. They aren't, they aren't living it. So, so what else has to be part of this? Uh, yeah. So if the first question is who is God, and, and I think you can't move beyond that till you get that right. Right. I mean, you, if someone's going, oh, he's an abusive father who abandoned his child on the cross, you go, hold on, let me, let me back up. But you're right. I think so many mature folks can articulate a really orthodox, right view of God. Uh, but then when you ask them, so what's your purpose in life, then the, that, that, everything goes off the wheels, right? And, you know, you kind of go, Ooh, I don't think that make a lot of money, get successful, or maybe they won't even say it, but their life betrays their values. You know, it's about money and success and power and, you know, all that stuff. 
So the next question is after who is God, it's who am I? And it's interesting. Um, I think sometimes that sounds almost like self-centered, right? This like, you know, you're like, wait, I'm going to be discipled and you want me to explore who I am. And I'm like, well, I want you to explore who God says you are. I don't want you to necessarily explore just who you and think you are. And um, John Calvin, actually, the way he starts his big book on the Institutes, John Calvin's just this theologian that, you know, is deeply respected. He says, in order to have a knowledge of self, it begins with the knowledge of God, but also the knowledge of God begins your knowledge of self and this idea that they're related. And the reason why he says that is because Genesis 1, you are made in the image of God. And so answering the question, who am I, what you're really answering is who does God say that I am and what is it he's demanding of me? And that's a very different question than just like, what are my hobbies? <laughs> like, what do I enjoy doing on Saturday morning? And I think this piece is what is hugely missing to what you were just saying. Kay. I think you're absolutely right. People do not get this question right. Well, and you know, often, and, and it's probably tied up in the United States with our individualism yeah. as well. Often for people, the question about what God has for them is tied up with just them. Yeah, that's right. You yeah. know, just me, what specifically has God gifted me and how does he want me to serve him? But it's possible that they miss the bigger picture of how they tie in, not just with their own gifting, but how, how, did, how, how does that work in a communal situation in the church? Yeah, it's so good. Cause that's, the, you know, the three questions I would say, if you're not asking and answering, who is God, who am I, and who are others and how do those relate? That piece is hugely that others thing, because if you were to say, okay, God is good. You know, he's just, he's powerful. He's sovereign. Yep. Check, 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 check. You say, okay, great. Pass that one. I am made in the image of God. Therefore I am endowed with dignity and honor and I've been given spiritual gifts. And this is what God's called me to do. You say, okay, great. Check, 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 check. Then the question becomes, so what does God want you to do with your neighbor? And that is one of the biggest questions the scriptures ask over and over and over again. And somehow we miss it. Right. So you know, if I were to take somebody through the scriptures, you get what everybody, always, it's funny, I always joke in like February, I'm like, okay, guys, it's about that time when you're supposed to be in Leviticus, if you're doing the Bible through the year, how many of y'all are skipping it? How many of y'all thought you'd skip it? And then you got to numbers and that got weird, you know, and, but I tell people, I said, listen, the book of Leviticus can get a little wonky, I know. But one of the things that it does is I always tell people the law is both regulatory and that it regulates our behavior, but it's also revelatory and that it reveals God's values. Every law code in the world does this, right? It's why you cannot speed in a school zone without getting a bigger fine, because we as a society have said, hey, the children are more vulnerable and they deserve more protection. And you say, okay, great. Like we as a society, we do that. Well, we're, it wasn't a society that chose the laws of Leviticus. It was God who handed them down. And when you look at them, you see this extreme concern for the neighbor, right? There's all these laws about, okay, what if I harm my neighbor? How do I, how do I bring us back into restoration? If, if there are the vulnerable among us, right? There's this fourfold vulnerable of the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And God talks about them all the time. And not only does he say, Hey, look out for them. He goes, Hey, go above and beyond for them. I want you to especially care for this group of people because they're the most vulnerable. And so it's an interesting when you say, you know, who is God easy, great. Most people can get that, especially if they've grown up in the church. 
you might need to fix some of your views. You know, maybe there's a few things. Who am I? Yeah, okay, maybe maybe you've misunderstood some shame messages and you need to work on that. But who are others? What's interesting is we fall into tribes. We fall into political parties. We fall into ethnic groups. We fall in, I mean, in Dallas, we fall into neighborhoods. Like I think Oak Cliff's better than Lakewood. You know, we, we like to separate ourselves into categories where God is consistently trying to remind us you owe your neighbor something. And if you can't answer what that something is, you're not being formed into a disciple. Yeah, that's great. That's really good because, and you know, even within the church, we're to be one. I mean, Jesus, Mm -hmm. Jesus really emphasized that. And what you're talking about, those are the things that divide us that we're focusing so much on right now. Yeah. It's so true. And, and this is where, again, it goes back to taking your Bible seriously, right? What, when you think about, if you add this, is what I love, this is a great question. I love to ask people. I love to ask people what comes to mind when you hear God. I love that question. But one of them is what was the result of Jesus's death and resurrection? And you can learn a lot about a person based on their response, because you're right. Most people who grow up in the church in America, especially in white churches, upper middle class, Western Europe, like European, all sort of these individualistic cultures will answer personal salvation, right? It'll be something like that, which is not wrong. It's just incomplete. It's too small of you, the gospel. And what's interesting is I tell people, I say, okay, let's go to Ephesians 2, right? Because it's, that's one of the first verses. If you're going to do a memory verse thing, everybody goes, oh, go memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which first of all, they should memorize through 10, but that's neither here nor there. So that you go, okay, it's by grace you've been saved. It's a gift of God. It's so great. And you go, okay, great. Now keep going. And then they go, oh yeah. And in verse 10, we get gifts from the spirit that God wants us to use. And then you go, okay, now keep going. And what's interesting is Ephesians 2 is all about the results of the gospel. It's by grace. You've been saved. It's this amazing thing. And you've been saved into a mission. But then 11 through 22 is all about how Jesus knocks down the dividing wall of hostility and how he's building us into one body, into one. Like you use these metaphors in the New Testament of we're one family, we're one temple, we're one body. And this idea of oneness permeates the scriptures. And yet we talk about the body of God in ways that Jesus would go, that's, that is not how you're supposed to talk about my bridegroom. That is not how you're supposed to talk about the people that I died for. And I, I don't think we take that message of oneness seriously enough in our discipleship. We think, Hey, if I'm not sinning, if I'm not looking at porn, I didn't cheat on my taxes. I didn't have an affair. I didn't, you know, then we're good. And I would say, uh, I think you need to go read the story of the Good Samaritan. And I think you need to go to read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 and ask yourself, what do I owe my neighbor? Because it might not just be stop sinning. It might be care of neighbor that's missing from your discipleship. So how do we disciple? I mean, you've given great things to talk about with individuals, but what do we do as churches? Yeah as leaders in churches to get there. Yeah, I think we have to do a better job of forming our people's imaginations and understanding. So one of the things that is um, so true of like, if you were to go, I just came back from London. I was there for a couple of weeks. I know London has a special place in your heart. Well, they have a literal monarchy, you know? So when you read parts of scripture that talk about a king, they have a, they have an imagination, right? Of like, 
they, you nobody there, I, you know, as an American, I could go around and be like, the queen stinks. And I imagine I would offend some people, right? Well, here in our country, you can say whatever you want about the president and it's, it's a different culture. That being said, it means that sometimes we fail to understand what the scriptures mean when it says that Jesus is king, right? This idea of there's a king, a kingdom and a kingdom ethic. And I think we have to reshape our people into thinking in those ways. And what that means is if there's a king, then who's your highest allegiance to? And if there's a kingdom, then what does that mean to belong to a kingdom? And if there's a king and a kingdom, then there has to be a kingdom ethic. What is that ethic? And I think that we have to start using language like this to reshape our imaginations, because what that ultimately is going to do is say, okay, so where does your allegiance lie? Like, who do you owe your first fruits to? Who do you owe your greatest and highest allegiance to? Who do you owe love to? Which hopefully people would say everyone I go, but love has legs in the scripture. So what would that look like? And so I think we have to be a God first people second type churches. And we need to talk like that. One of my, my pastor, he says, we uh, love people and use things. He goes, so if you're using people and loving things, you're not doing Christianity, right? And it's such a simple phrase, but it, it's corrective. You know, I think the second thing is, I think you have to, um, one of the things we do at our church is we do the prayers of the people. And depending on, as y'all are listening, you know, you might be in a church tradition that prays, uh, you know, more formal prayers. And that's a little bit of what our church does. But what you say in those prayers will have an impact on your people. So one of the things that we say during our prayer time is we pray for those through their own or others actions are deprived of the fullness of life. And then people respond back for prisoners, refugees, the handicapped, the elderly, and the sick. And you think to yourself, that starts to form you, right? So suddenly there's political rhetoric about refugees and our people are going, wait a minute, we pray for them every Sunday. That has an impact on the way you value and care for people. And so I think churches have to start talking about allegiance. I think they have to start challenging some of these allegiances. I think they need to, you know, I think leaders need to be willing to risk the uncomfortable and even the direct to say, hey, look, if your nationality is more important to you than your allegiance to God and your allegiance to neighbor, you have a misordered allegiance. And if you're, if you're, I mean, it's, you know, if you love your golf game more than you love your family, we know that's a misordered love. So why is it we're so afraid to talk about politics, ethnicity, all of these things? And I know the answer It's because people lost their minds the last few years. That's why we're afraid to talk about it. But uh, we're going to need courageous people to say the courageous thing if we're going to get our discipleship back on track. Absolutely. Uh I totally agree with that. And, and I, I think that's wonderful what you talked about prayer, because basically what we're doing is upholding all these people as being made in the image of God. And you treat people differently when you realize they're made in the image of God, even if they aren't like you, even if they don't have what you have, even if they speak a different language, they're from a different place. These are people made in the image of God. And they have to be treated as made in the image of God. That, I mean, that, that's a core value that y'all are upholding by praying for all those groups every Sunday. And I do believe what people hear over and over and over is a whole lot of how we form Christ in us. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, there was a, a sociologist, so, sociologist, I think that's the term, where they studied um, lynching in America when it was at its highest. And what they discovered was in churches where there was more integration and specifically integration where people took communion together. There were far fewer lynchings in that town. And these are sociologists, they weren't Christians. And they concluded it's harder to kill someone who you share a meal with. And we, as I think about that as Christians, like one of the things that we do is we end with communion every Sunday. And, and again, there's always these debates, right? About like, should a church be formal? Should it be easy? Should it be whatever? And I go, well, there's also this pastors should think about formation, right? So why you do something shouldn't just be because we've always done it. It should be because, hey, this makes me love God and love neighbor better. And the thing that we used to do way before the pandemic, because this is, you can't do it anymore because of germs. We might go back to it some days. We would celebrate the Lord's Supper by intention, which means you take a piece of bread and you dip it into the same cup and then you take it. And we said, the reason why we did that is because it signifies that first and foremost, that you belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. But secondly, by sharing the same cup, you belong to each other. And that has an, right? So suddenly your church mate has annoyed you. <laughs> you don't like them, but you have to come to the realization, look, we drink from the same cup. We belong one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So we're going to have to find a way to live together. Like we're going to have to find a way to work through our differences because we're, and there's something about going and sharing communion that kind of humbles you. That makes you go, okay, well, we're all kind of beggars coming to this table. Like no one's really better than anybody when you're coming to the same table that was paid for by the blood of Jesus. And those are the kinds of things that we put in front of our people every week, because we're trying to say, look, there are no winners and losers. There are no, you know, donkeys and elephants. There are, there's just us who belong to Jesus. And there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism that unites us. Um, and so that's what I, I think, you know, I think, pastors and church leaders and women's ministers and all that sometimes we think about the product right sort of like was it good teaching you know were the small group leaders doing a good job sort of was the curriculum good and all that's important but I think sometimes we need to take a step back and think about okay what is the goal here and if if the goal is formation into greater Christ-likeness right if the answer to who is God who am I who are others it's God is the ultimate good. I owe him everything. And I am meant to be more like his son. Then how, like, then that becomes the driving questions, not can they learn the book of Hebrews? What's the best curriculum for that? That's important. Answer that question. We all know that's a really tough book, but what are the other practices or the things that you can do to help people then be formed along the way? And in COVID, malformed us in ways that we weren't even aware of you know it, it we are more isolated than we've ever been we're more lonely than we've ever been and we're more tribalized than we've ever been so we've got a herculean task in front of us i know it's tough this is what keeps me up at night i think about this all the time but i i do believe that this is it this is the sum of christianity is to be people who worship god to love our neighbor to care and serve for people so it's a worthy task to to spend your time on and i think it's going to require a lot of thoughtfulness, but it's completely doable. And I think the fruit of it will be people who love their neighbor better, people who love God better, love, you know, their communities better. And I think it's a worthy task. Um, if you were talking to perhaps a small group leader or someone who's mentoring a younger Christian, the communion ideas or the 
prayer ideas may not quite work in that type yeah. of a situation. What, what would you say to them? How would you encourage them to move forward with discipleship? Yeah, I think if you're in a one-on-one setting, I would use, I would literally use this rubric of who is God, who am I, who are others? And I would take them to very specific texts, but then I would also try to help them integrate into their life. So what I would say is like, hey, how could you at your job demonstrate that you believe you belong to God and your life should be different? How could you in your relationship, is there a relationship where maybe you're not at your best, right? It brings out not the fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of the flesh. Like, and I think that's what I would do is I would look at and go, hey, how can you in all these, you know, one of the things that we do as people, we don't intend to, but like, Sunday is a box church. Great. Monday through Friday, big box work evenings is that, you know, and and go, how can I, how can you live in such a way that demonstrates, you know, you belong to God when you show up to your job on Monday, you know, you belong to God. When you go on that date with that guy, you know, you belong to God. When you show up to have conflict with your husband for the 47th time about that thing that you guys are both not able to move past. Like I, I, that's what I would do is I would encourage asking these conversations, but doing it in the context of where their life on life is really being met. And, and then I would also challenge them to go, Hey, are there areas of your life? If you're being really honest, you know, you, you like to belong to this group more than, you know, there's certain group of people you don't like, or maybe there's a group of people, you know, one of the things I always say is imagine there's like a big, you know, blanket between you and some other persons across that blanket and you don't know who it is. And, th- and somebody comes to you and says, look, you're going to spend a whole week with this person. You're going to stay in the same house, eat at the table. You're going to hang out a whole week and it's all expense paid. We'll take you wherever you want. And then the blanket drops. Who do you not want to see on the other side of that? And maybe it's your mother-in-law, right? Maybe it's a very specific person or maybe it's a type of person, someone who votes a certain way, someone who has a certain lifestyle that you disagree with someone, you know, what could you find a way to love and serve them? And if you can't, maybe that's where you spend your time in prayer and talking to the Lord to help soften your heart and find a way to love and recognize that person's made in the image of God, that person's endowed with dignity and honor and what you owe them is love. And I think these are those practices that I would do on a small scale. And, and, you know, and it's going back to what we're, where we started this conversation, it's going to require you pray. It's going to be spirit led. It's going to be slow. It's going to be, you know, you're going to need to okay, how do we, how do we move forward in, in all of these different areas is what I would encourage a person to do. Those are, those are great, great ideas and great tips and, and a good reminder because it can get weary when something is slow. Oh man. <laughs> I, yeah, that yeah. is exact. I love pastoring. I do. I love it. I love my job. I love being a resident theologian, but I tell people the hardest thing about being a pastor is the pace. And the reality is I'm just as annoyed at my own pace of maturity. You know, I think sometimes I should be farther than this by now. Shouldn't I be farther than this by now? And um, Eugene Peterson says the role of a pastor is to be uh, prayerful, a poet. And what he means by that is to be able to use words to impact people and then patient. And I'm like, man, I can be prayerful. I can be a poet, but that patience piece is, but you know, God is slow. And he's patient and he works. And, and so I think there's just this, there's a trajectory we all want to be on, which is greater Christ-likeness. The pace is not going to be linear. It's not going to be always up and to the right. It's not going to always be pretty. There are going to be things that happen in life that you didn't do that happened to you, grief and pain and things like that, that it's going to either slow down or it might even speed up your development. And yet 
the goal though, what we're like aiming for is love of God, love of self, love of neighbor, loving each other and, and becoming made more and more into the image of, of the God in whose image we already bear. Right. Well, that's a good way to end this. I think that's yeah. a good reminder for all of us as, as to what our goal is about. So thank you, Nika, for joining us in this. We hope to, we, I mean, we, we're planning to have more conversations about re-imaging uh, discipleship, reimagining discipleship. And uh, you said image so many times that yeah, I got it in your head. <laughs> right. Reimagining discipleship. We're going to talk to some other people coming from a few different perspectives. And so we hope we, you will join us for those as well. And NICA is going to come up with some resources for us. Uh, and they will be on our website at beyondordinarywomen.org. Love it. Thanks again. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Kay. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Ordinary Women podcast. You can find more podcast episodes and resources for women in leadership by going to beyondordinarywomen.org. This podcast is produced by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministry. Our production team includes Evelyn Babcock, Kay Daigle, Deborah Herring, and Sharifa Stevens. Theme music, Back in Stride by Don Miller, used courtesy of Christine Miller.